What's the story? It's um, a phrase that's entered into the English language, isn't it? What's the story? If you're familiar with Cockney rhyming slang, I might say to you, Jack and Ori. What's the story, Jack and Ori? Does that mean anything to any of you? Jack and Ori? Those of you of my age and older remember the kids' programme, Jack and Ori, where they used to get authors. <laughs> Jack and Ori. What's the story? If you were a child, you might say, what's the story in... Balamori, thank you. At least we've got uh, someone who knows what wavelength I'm on. <laughs> if you're Irish, you might say, what's the crack? If you're a fan of Gavin and Stacey, you might say, what's occurring? You know that catchphrase? What's going on? What's the situation? Fill me in. Give me the goss. What's the story? Well, we're, we're excited to be starting a short series that we've subtitled God, the Gospel and Culture. And I think this little phrase, what's the story, probably sums up everything, really, that I, that I want to say. Uh, I'm wondering whether we should print some t-shirts with this on, with like Rotherham Evangelical Church on the back and just on the front, what's the story? Because I hope that this does become... Um, a phrase that is familiar to us. Um, for instance, in a way, we could ask this question about all three things in our subtitle there. Um, it's not an accident that while we're thinking about popular culture, we've begun a series on the Trinity in our midweek groups that somehow have become known as Gokos. I'm apparently a Goko pop, which is uh, Jai's idea, not mine. But um, yeah, Goko, our gospel communities. Um, what we're really asking in relation to God is what's the story and we, we need to make no mistake um, that it is a story because God is not an abstract idea or a philosophy or an ism but a living loving eternal Trinitarian community and everything that happens in God's world, really, history really is the unfolding of his story. And it's the outworking of his being, his character, his nature. Life is ultimately his story. And so when we think about God and his character, the Trinity, we're saying really, aren't we, what's the story? When we think about the gospel too, this is an appropriate question. What's the story? It's an incredible story. The best of stories. The greatest of stories. Rich, deep, meaningful, honest, powerful and eternal. The gospel story has ancient roots stretching way back into the heart of God in eternity. And it has a glorious future. It has a rugged and vibrant present too as God works out his amazing purposes in a messy, broken, sinful world. We do well to ask in relation to the gospel, what's the story? But hopefully as well by the time we get to the end of this little series, we'll also be equipped a little better to relate to and respond to the culture that we live in 
by approaching it with exactly this question. I, I want all of us to kind of metaphorically wear the t-shirt. When we look out into our culture, as Christian people, we should be asking, what's the story? Shouldn't we? What's the story? And I want to encourage us to think like that when we look out into our culture. The idea of story does seem to be built into human nature, doesn't it? We seem to be hardwired to understand things in story form. And it's been like that for a long time. Ancient civilizations, right up to our modern culture, stories never seem to go out of fashion, do they? We love to get the meaning, the idea, the sense of why things are like they are. And often we do this by telling stories. Even journalists know this, don't they, when they're communicating the news. It's often done in terms of what that news means to people. Journalists are interested in reporting facts most of the time. Sometimes they make facts up, don't they? But uh, journalists most of the time are interested in reporting facts. But what is a journalist's question always when they're reporting facts? What's the story? Because that's where we as humans discover the meaning of a thing. I want to give you an example that one of my lecturers gave to us. Rich and Robin came with me to, to the course that I was doing recently. I, I should say, in fact, as we approach this whole topic, that I'm very grateful to my lecturer for helping me think through some of this stuff. Um, and I, I shouldn't fail to mention um, the, the influence that Ted has been. Um, much of what we're going to think about over the next few weeks is, is partly based on his book, Popologetics. So if you want to know where we're going over the next few weeks, you can get a copy of that and have a little sneak preview or ask to borrow a copy. But uh, back to the importance of stories. In December 2009, we've got a clip. Great. In December 2009, a couple of American writers did a project that they called Significant Objects. Get this. The idea was that they went to markets and they bought cheap bric-a-brac, worthless junk, for like, you know, a dollar. And then they got authors, some of them were well-known authors, and they matched up the author with the worthless piece of trash. And they got the author to make up a story about the worthless piece of junk. Then they put the items on eBay, along with the story as a description, to see what difference it made to the value of the article. Good tip if you trade on eBay. I'm not sure how ethical it is. They were interviewed by a lady on American radio. This was only in 2009, so we're just going to hear a short clip. You'll hear the interviewer, the lady, speak first. And then one of the guys will explain. It's only about a minute. So here we go. So here's how it works. They buy a knick-knack at a thrift store and match it with an author, from big names like William Gibson to up-and-comers. The writer invents a story about the object, which then gets posted for sale on eBay. Glenn and Walker are trying to see whether adding a story raises the object's price. Take this little plastic Russian doll with a big cloth mustache that's mounted on a little piece of wood. It's just an ugly, homely little thing that I bought. But Doug Doris wrote a very funny story claiming this was uh, a woodcutter named Ralkomir, who during a particularly bad blizzard when everybody in his village in Russia were freezing to death, danced so hard on a little piece of wood that it burst into flame. So do these stories really pay off? According to my facts here, we 
sold $128.74 worth of insignificant doodads for $3,612.51. So that was a 2,706% increase. That Russian doll he bought for three bucks at a thrift store, it sold for $193. Wow. Did you get that? A worthless little Russian doll. Some guy makes up a story about how this is a relic of some guy who danced on a piece of wood to set it on fire to keep everyone warm. They bought it for $3. It sold for just shy of $200. Why? Because it had a story attached to it. I'm not sure I recommend making up stories about your worthless trash that you're trying to sell on eBay. But if you want to increase the price, there's one idea you could try. Um, somehow the story transformed the object and made it meaningful. You get that? And um, I, I think that underlines the fact that human beings experience life in a way through stories. So, uh, one, of, one of our questions is, why think about popular culture? Am I going to do this? I'm going to try. Hey, look at that. Why think about culture? I suppose the obvious, obvious question is, why on earth would we want to be thinking about culture in church? Is this not a waste of time? Should we not be studying the Bible and letting other people worry about popular culture? We are going to get to the Bible. This is not just a seminar on culture. But there are a few reasons why Christians might not think about popular culture so much. Here's three. There's lots, but here's three. We might say popular culture is just trivial. It is a waste of time. It's just stupid and trashy, and it's not really worth bothering with. On this basis, we should just ignore it. We should just ignore popular culture altogether. We're above it. And we look down on it. And it doesn't influence us at all. So that's one response we could have. We might, on the other hand, say, popular culture is terrible. So we should just condemn it and distance ourselves from it. It is full of sex and violence and bad language. And we don't want to be contaminated by it. So actually, we're going to condemn it and uh, distance ourselves from it. That could be another response, couldn't it? It's not uncommon. Thirdly, we might say popular culture is entertaining. It's just harmless entertainment. It's just a bit of fun. And so, really, we want to consume it. This is how we relax, unwind, chill out. And really, when you think about those three ideas, there's truth in all of those, isn't there? Um, some pop culture is trivial some popular culture is terrible and not good for you and some popular culture is just entertaining and enjoyable we certainly don't want to fall into the trap of over analysing everything some things are there just to be enjoyed and there's nothing wrong with that but what I want to argue is that Christians shouldn't only be doing these things what we should be doing is asking, what's the story? What we're interested in is meaning and understanding what popular culture reflects about where our hearts are. And of course, we also want to be able to tell the story, God's story, 
into our culture in a way that our culture understands. So, are you with me? Yeah? You, you, you don't look convinced, but we'll, we'll, we'll plow on. Um, I want to very briefly think about three things. Um, three, three simple points, really. First of all, I, I just want to think about why popular culture is influential. And then we're going to get to the Bible and see two other things. I want to show from the Bible why it's important for Christians to build bridges with and into our culture. And then finally, from the passage that Andrew read to us, we're going to think about an example from the Bible of Paul doing exactly that in Athens. Okay? So why is public culture influential? We're going to then think from the Bible about why it's important for us to build bridges with it. And then we'll look at an example from Paul. And then I'll explain what we're going to do over the next few weeks as well. So first question was, why is popular culture influential? I want to suggest to you, uh, you won't be surprised at this given our introduction, that popular culture is influential precisely because it uses stories to create meaning. And that is, that is the reason why it resonates with people so I've given you the answer there at the start. Popular culture is influential because it uses stories to create meaning. But let's, let's just build up to that. Um, I, I want to think um, about the idea of, of worldviews. You know what someone's worldview is. Uh, I wear glasses. They, they are clear, not tinted. But I suppose a person's worldview is a little bit like the kind of glasses that you see the world through. So when you look out into the world, you relate to other people, your worldview is kind of the perspective that you see things from. One helpful analogy, it's not a perfect analogy as we'll see, but I'll actually use this analogy of a tree. And I think it's a helpful way of looking at things. So let me just work this through. We won't be too long with this. First of all, a tree has roots. They, they are the roots under the ground, as you'll see when you see the rest of the tree. And the roots really represent a person's assumptions. And all of us have a very basic level of assumptions that underpin our worldview. Um, I was reading one book recently that was split into chapters about the kind of things that we have assumptions about. And you, you could go through them all. What, what are your underlying assumptions about God? About human nature? About the past? The future? Life after death? Salvation? Morality? Where do ethics come from? All of these things might be rooted in a person's assumptions about the world. And we, all, we all have these underlying assumptions. We'll come back to that in a minute. A tree also has a trunk. Okay. So, growing out of those assumptions, we, we'll develop a kind of story of how we see the world, won't we? Why is the world like it is? How does it fit together? What's reality? How can I know stuff? What's the difference between right and wrong? So, out of those underlying assumptions grows a kind of world story 
And from that, the tree will have branches with leaves on, if it's that kind of tree. And I've called this part someone's life philosophy. So you've got assumptions that grow into a life story that then will work themselves out in a philosophy of life. So, and someone's philosophy of life could be maybe ground down to a, a motto, couldn't it? We, you know, we don't kind of walk around with these things stamped on our foreheads, but you might recognise some of these. Someone might say, my life philosophy is look after number one because no one else will. That's a life philosophy, isn't it? That flows from a set of assumptions and a way of looking at the world that leads to a philosophy of life. Someone else might say, if they've watched millions of Disney films, you've got to believe in yourself. All Disney films seem to have that underlying message, don't they? Believe in yourself, you can achieve anything. That is a life philosophy. That might be your motto, I don't know. But that too flows from a set of assumptions, a way of seeing the world, and then the kind of life philosophy would be believe in yourself. Some people might say, enjoy life while you can. I suppose that's a variation on eat. What's the phrase? Eat, drink and be merry. For tomorrow we die. Someone else might say, my motto is work hard, play hard. I don't, you, so a life philosophy, you, you might like to think about what your life philosophy is. Often these things we don't verbalise, do we? But we all have them. Assumptions, a world story and a life philosophy. And then finally, there's fruit on this tree. And the fruit is, I suppose, the way then someone behaves. These things will work themselves out in the way we live. I suppose what I want to really underline here is that assumptions are, in the end, exactly that. Everyone, in the end, bases their life on underlying assumptions. And how we look at life is never neutral. Um, everyone has a pair of glasses that they filter everything that they experience through. That's why two people can look at the same situation or the same fact even, and come to a different conclusion about what that fact means. Because the assumptions and the world story that they kind of live in affects the way that they view that reality. So we all bring our basic assumptions to everything. A person's worldview, your worldview, my worldview, will generally form some sort of coherent system to live by. This is what life is for me. This is what it means for me. I said it's not a perfect illustration, and that's true for at least two reasons. One is that it is true in life, isn't it, that a person's worldview can be shattered and shaken. You, you may well have assumptions and a way of seeing the world, and then something happens and it completely shatters your concept of the world you, you might be someone who believes in God for example and then something happens in your life and it shakes you to the, to the very core of your being so the idea of having a worldview is it isn't necessarily a static thing the truth is also secondly that e even though we all have worldviews human beings can live inconsistently with their own worldview. We all know that, don't we? So you can have a way of seeing the world, you can have a set of assumptions, 
but then the way you live isn't consistent with that and so it's messy and there are all sorts of reasons why we all can do that that's true for Christians and non-Christians it's, it's, it's true that a person's worldview isn't necessarily clean and precise and scientific it's messy sometimes but it's helpful I think to see the connection between the roots and the fruits the assumptions, the world story the philosophy and the behaviour now our question though is why is popular culture influential and part of the answer I think is that popular culture works on the level of stories Um, so here's a question for you and uh, I think we've got oh there we go here's a question for you a lot of people in the media ask this does popular culture shape people's worldviews, or does popular culture just reflect the worldviews that people have we should have a little chat about that and a little vote a little full poll does pop- some people say for example the violence on TV it makes people violent other people would say the violence on TV is just reflecting the fact that people are violent who's right does it shape or does it merely reflect what do you think both both do you think it leans one way or the other nature nature do you want to elaborate on that Okay, so okay, so both of those things are working together. What you really are can be influenced, though, by by being socialised. Excellent words, being socialised, socialising. Yeah, the environment, nature or nature. Okay, does it shape or does it reflect? The right answer is it does both. Some people are very cynical about popular culture and think it's all a mass conspiracy. Don't they? The idea that big companies dominate the media and that all they're doing is feeding their kind of agenda to us. And we sit at home kind of watching things and drinking things in. And somehow we're being influenced. What we need to remember is that it wouldn't be popular culture unless it resonated with people, wouldn't it? If someone makes a film and no one likes it, film company isn't going to be in business that long is it? so to some degree the general public are not necessarily passive we do vote with our feet so the people who make popular culture have to to some degree appeal to what's already there otherwise popular culture won't resonate with people but I think there is a sense as, as you rightly said that it does both and I think the middle of that is that, that popular culture works by weaving stories that may or may not resonate with people. And sometimes popular culture will reinforce a person's worldview. Sometimes it will stretch it and challenge it. But in the end, what's happening is that worlds of meaning are being created and lived in and experienced. So popular culture is influential because it uses stories to reflect, create and reinforce meaning. I I suppose the added spice for us 
in our modern day is that technology has made it possible for that process to be pervasive and very fast and very visual more than in any other age we, we live in technology kind of fuels this process doesn't it so that cycle of meaning reflecting and shaping culture is very visual and very quick I, I suppose what I'm trying to say is that in a real sense our approach as Christians should not be just to count the number of swear words and dismiss something as being ungodly although that is important what I'm trying to argue is that we need to think behind and and ask the question what's the story why does it resonate with people and what does it say about people's hearts and attitudes what I want to aim is that we as Christians need to be asking when we look out into our culture what's the story what's occurring what's the crack that's where I want us to get to so why does popular culture influence or how does it influence it influences two stories I want to suggest then that if popular culture uses stories to create meaning then Christian people need to build bridges with that culture in order to be understood and uh, I want to turn to the Bible uh, to a passage that uh, is in 1 Peter chapter 3 and it's on page 1219 if you've got a red church Bible Christians need to build bridges this is um, quite a well known verse Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15 um, Peter as you know is a disciple of Jesus he's writing these letters maybe 30 years after the resurrection and he writes to these people who are being persecuted and he says to them but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have but do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have can you see that Peter's putting the boot on the other foot there and what's going on is that even in this culture where Christians are being maligned the way that they live individually and together provokes questions from an unbelieving community so that the unbelieving community are coming to the Christians and saying what's the story what's the story with you guys what on earth makes you tick what is your world view what is it that gives you purpose where do you get your living vibrant hope from come on guys what's the story can you get that 
And what does Peter say to them? He says, I want you always to be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you what's the story. And he frames it as giving a reason for the hope that you have. Giving a reason for the hope that you have. So this is the way I want to say it, that there are two sides to this bridge. One side is rooted in the culture and the other side is rooted in God's story. And maybe we should call the bridge not like the Humber Bridge. That is a picture of the Humber Bridge, isn't it? It's not the Humber Bridge, it is the Reason for Hope Bridge. The bridge that Christians need to build is that Christians need to keep two things in mind. What is our culture saying and meaning and doing? What's the story there? And what is God's big story? And how can I connect those things and give people in this culture a reason for the hope that I now have? I think this goes back to the fact that we're talking here about meaning. People can see the same facts but interpret them in different ways because of their assumptions. And it isn't enough sometimes to think that just presenting... We we can't stand on one side of the bridge and just lob facts over the water because people will grab those facts and interpret them differently. This bridge has to take account of the fact that there are different worldviews at play and it's not just about information but about the experience of that information as well. Uh, just let me put it this way if, if you are thinking of God in heaven building a bridge to connect with this world isn't it incredible that Jesus is described in the Bible as the living word isn't that incredible he is the truth but he's alive he is living truth he's a person to be related to and experienced and enjoyed I love the fact that God has revealed himself not just with information but he's embedded and kind of clothed that revelation, that information in a historical narrative, a story. As God builds bridges into this world's culture God could have just sent information there you go. But what he's done is he's unfolded the revelation of himself in history. He's revealed himself by what he does and how he behaves. And ultimately, as we know, in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus. As we build bridges into our culture and give the reason for the hope within us, we are talking about facts, yes, but we're also living out a story. We're displaying what we say. We're declaring it and explaining it and also living it. So I want to argue that a Christian needs to focus on three things. We need to be strengthened in the hope that we have in Christ. We also need to work very hard to understand the culture that we're in. And thirdly, we need to see that it's not just our words that convey meaning, but our behaviour. And what we do together says something about our part in that story. Does that make sense? That bridge has got two sides. What's the story? God's big story. What's the story? Culture's story. And how we, can, how, how, we, how we connect those things 
involves information and demonstration. Well, let's close, as I said we would, with a biblical example of Paul doing this in Athens. And this is our last point. In Acts chapter 17, that Andrew read to us, um, Paul finds himself in, in, in Athens waiting for his colleagues. They've experienced some persecution and Paul flees and arrives in Athens. And there's a great model here of bridge building. Um, I want you to notice in particular verse 22 and 23 as he opens his talk to the clever people of his day. He says, he stands up in the meeting of the Areopagus. Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. They had so many gods, they didn't know what to do with them. And just in case they'd missed one, we'll build an altar to the unknown God. Paul, it says he was walking around and looking carefully at what his culture were worshipping. Do you get that? He wasn't just, he was doing this, but he wasn't just sitting at home in his study thinking about his worldview, but he actually got up off his chair and went out, walked around the city, went into their temples, looked at the inscriptions, and then was thinking, what is it that, what's the story? What is he asking? He's got the t-shirt on, hasn't he? He's going into Athens, and the question on his mind is, what's the story here? What makes these people tick? And how can I tell them God's story in a way that resonates with them and connects with them? If I'm going to do that, I've got to know their end of the bridge. I know my end of the bridge. But he gets up and he walks around and he, he looks carefully. Let, let me ask you as a challenge, and I'm asking my own heart this, when did I last metaphorically get up and walk out and look carefully at what the people in my culture, the people in our culture, are worshipping? When did we last do that? Paul was living and breathing this, wasn't he? He understands that these people are worshippers. And to understand their hearts, he looked at the culture. We don't live for idols in the religious sense, do we? But our culture does worship all kinds of idols. And as Paul speaks to them, he even references their own poets and uses the poet's quotes to underline his own story. He uses it to tell them God's story. And as you read this little talk here, he begins so respectfully, he begins by understanding them. But he tells them that the living God is the great creator. He is not dependent on us, we're dependent upon him. He's the one who has ordered the world, even down to where we live, in order that we would seek him and find him. He is a loving father who wants to relate to us. And Paul says to them, we need to stop suppressing the thought of him and running from him 
and being scared of him and stop substituting him with something else and love him because he is our loving father and Paul says this is only possible because of Jesus, his son who died and rose again with power and he is the one who holds our destiny in his hands they said to Paul listen mate what's the story? They took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. They may as well have said, what's the story, mate? And Paul told them. He turned it all around and used their story to invite them to participate in God's story. When we get to the end of the chapter... It says, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. People will. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Demaris, and a number of others. What is he doing? He's building a bridge into his culture now we don't live in Athens we live in Rotherham but isn't the question the same question we know God's big story but to make it relevant we need to build a bridge and understand where people's hearts are and one of the ways that we can understand that is to listen and engage with popular culture what's the story well we're done over the next three weeks we're going to be asking what's the story and when I ask that question in the next three weeks what I mean is what is the Bible teaching us about culture and how can we see things from God's perspective and how can we develop tools that will help us to look at popular culture and ask what's the story so we're going to spend the next three weeks and then maybe a concluding week after that thinking about creation the fall and redemption and we're going to think about culture from each of those perspectives so next week we'll think about what is the story what what does culture look like pre-fall what has happened to culture because of sin and the fall and what does culture look like now in the light of the redemption that Christ has brought and as we go through those three paradigms hopefully we'll begin to develop some tools that will help us to have the right glasses on when we look at popular culture together. Does that make sense? Great. Let's, let's pray, shall we? And then we're going to sing a closing song. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that the story of this world is your story. We thank you for your nature as we're thinking in our other groups, your Trinitarian community, for the love that there is between Father, Son, and Spirit. And we thank you that that generous, extravagant kindness and love has splashed over into this world. But Lord, we are very conscious that this world 
is, is a sin-spoiled, broken world. Our experience of life is often messy and difficult. And we pray, Lord, that as we think about our world, our culture, as we think about our participation in your story, Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to see the hope to which we have been called. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us discernment and wisdom as we look at our culture and as we seek to reach out to people around us with your grace, as Paul did. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us, that you would inspire us, that you would fill us with your spirit and that you would help us uh, to play our part in your great unfolding story. We thank you that you invite us to be part of it. We bless you and thank you for that. In Jesus' name. And we pray in his name and for his glory. Amen.